You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. The Florida Keys, Annapolis, Miami Beach, all of these communities have been dealing with a big problem. Water that comes in with the tides and doesn't leave. Salt water seeping up through storm drains and over the seawall. Another high tide is closing some streets and threatening businesses. A shocking announcement today that some roads and homes may be surrendered to the sea. And that's because in a lot of places, climate change has resulted in higher sea levels. And with the sea level uh, higher, high tide is going to be higher. So it's going to reach farther inland and it's going to flood areas that it didn't flood before because it's riding on a higher sea. That's climate scientist Astrid Caldas, and she calls this chronic inundation. You can think of it as the steady, ongoing creep of water into a community, primarily from high tides, as opposed to flooding from storms. Chronic inundation is inundation of at least 10% of a community usable land Mm -hmm. at least 26 times per year, which is more or less the two highest tides of a month. So it's when 10% of the community is underwater? At least 10%. Mm -hmm. So it can be 50%. It can be 70%. And some communities are already seeing very high numbers of inundation. And inundating some parts, either by an inch or by a foot, it doesn't matter because things get deteriorating, infrastructure starts getting affected. So that is kind of the the, the canary in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. It's like the areas that are inundating first. And these are the areas that are the most vulnerable. And communities, knowing about those areas, they can actually plan their adaptation to that high tide. So today on the show, we talk tidal flooding and sea level rise with climate scientist Astrid Caldas and take a look at just how many communities are at risk for chronic flooding as high tides keep getting higher. Astrid Caldas is a senior climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Astrid and her team wanted to know which communities are already experiencing chronic inundation and predict who will be at risk in the future. Give me kind of the highlights of some of the things that you found in that research. Wow. We found, we were amazed at two things. First, the number of communities that are already being chronically inundated at Mm -hmm. a very high level and the number of communities that will be chronically inundated in the time frame of 15 years. Give me me an idea of some of those numbers. Uh, About 170 communities are going to be seeing at least 10% of their uh, land inundated by 2035. Wow. Which is kind of crazy. Yeah. 2045 is, is more the numbers. The other thing that we found and that really kind of, whoa, was that how how those numbers in 10, 15 years increase dramatically okay. and how the scenario of emissions, which emissions drive global warming, which drive sea level rise. Sure. So how depending on how much we pump in the atmosphere, how much the sea rises, what a big difference that makes in the number of communities that are going to be chronically inundated in the near future, and particularly towards the end of the century. Right. So you kind of broke them into like three sea level scenarios. High emissions, meaning we haven't really cut our carbon emissions, intermediate and low. 
under the high emission scenario, how many communities or how many percent of communities are going to be impacted by coastal flooding? In the high emission scenario, mm-hmm. towards the end of the century, we'll see uh, about 60 percent of all oceanfront communities on the eastern Gulf Coast wow. being chronically inundated. That's about 670 communities. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot of communities. What about if we cut our emissions by mid-century, the intermediate level? In that case, we'll have about 40% of the oceanfront communities being chronically inundated on the eastern Gulf Coast. In the, in the near term, the difference between the intermediate and the high scenarios is not very marked. Gotcha. But if, as you go through the century and these scenarios play out because yeah. they're going to be very different towards the end of the century, that's when you see the biggest difference. And that's why we always highlight the importance of now, acting through quick. the mid century, acting quick to reduce emissions so you avoid that higher scenario. So, so tell me about the communities that are already being affected by this, communities that, you know, that we might not expect that are being affected right now. And, and then tell me about some of the communities that you're kind of keeping your eye on for the future. Who are the people that are going to experience this the most significantly? Well, the, the Gulf communities, for sure. Florida of course, Mm -hmm. the mid-Atlantic. If you go to the bayous in southern Louisiana and you talk to people in the Homa tribe, they uh, go through the the water and they say, well, you know, we don't see as many alligators here anymore Mm -hmm. because they like the fresh water and the water is getting brackish. Mm -hmm. The landscape is a landscape of dead trees because of the saltwater intrusion. The wildlife that they relied upon, the crops that they could plant, everything has has changed because of sea level rise. The eastern shore of Maryland is the same thing. You yeah. drive through the eastern shore of Maryland and it's that field of dead trees. So so these the the, the cascading effects are the immediate effect, which is the flood, the other immediate effect, which is the the, the water getting salinated, right, and the, the but that cascades into changes in wildlife, changes in plants that animals depend upon. That you know, yeah. so there's all these these things that are people say, oh, 30 years ago it was a completely different place and a completely different life. Yeah, it's really um worrisome. And, and for us, it's kind of a punch in the gut to work with these kinds of things and to yeah. see w- the results. Right. So obviously cities have to deal with this and they're kind of already dealing with it. Tell me a little bit about how cities are kind of trying to adapt to this. So uh, cities decide what to do depending on the level of risk that they can take and what is in harm's way. So there are mainly three buckets of adaptation that cities mix and match to try to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. It is the protection against the water, which is walls, berms, natural defenses, Mm -hmm. uh, living shorelines. So these are all kind of protections against the water. There is the accommodation of the water. You raise streets, you raise houses, you raise infrastructure so that if the water comes, it can come and go without causing a lot of damage. And of course, the third bucket is the worst bucket, which is a place gets inundated so often that there is nothing that really that can be done because you cannot protect it anymore and you cannot accommodate the water anymore because there's just so much you can adapt to rising seas. I mean, this is bad news, right? 
we have to have the the recognition that some of this is is going to happen no matter what yeah. and this is what we say so some of this is going to happen no matter what so you better plan for what you cannot avoid and plan even better and try to avoid the worst of it by reducing emissions obviously sure. which is the only way that we can yeah. slow down the rate of sea level right mm-hmm. so the message is kind of if we act soon we may, we can have smaller changes that won't impact our lives as much if we wait then we are going to have to act in a way that will change everybody's lifestyle in a way that's maybe more than we would be comfortable actually doing. That's the expectation, and that's kind of my personal message that I've been talking whenever I go talk to different audiences. It's like, what would you prefer, to have to use a different type of food or to have to use a different type of fuel, but continue to drive a car, continue to do what you want to do, continue to eat what you like to eat, or to have the conditions that are extraneous to you that you don't have any control over, decide what you can eat because there is nothing else, or you cannot drive because there is no fuel. What makes you continually work in this area? What gives you hope? when you're thinking about this? Well, in in the, the years that I've been working with this, I noticed that there is a lot more acceptance and there is a lot more concern. And climate change has gotten to um, a point of where it's an important issue for people um, in elections. So I see, I see hope. My worry is that we're not going to act fast enough. Mm-hmm. So there is this this thing about, yeah, what kind of actions I can take. Well, to reduce our, your carbon footprint is super important, you know, because it, it's it's people. Thanks so much to Astrid Caldas, senior climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Today's episode was produced by Britt Hansen and edited by Viet Le. The facts were checked by Emily Vaughn. I'm Maddie Safaya. Thanks for listening to Shortwave from NPR.